a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Today is Wednesday, January 22nd, 2020. On this day in 1957, mad bomber George Metesky confessed to planting over 30 explosives around New York City. He'd terrorized locals for 16 long years, all in his search for justice against his former employer, Consolidated Edison. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today I'm joined by our guest host, Sam Dingman of Family Ghosts. His show investigates the true stories behind a mysterious figure whose legend has followed a family for generations. Sam's here to discuss some of the historical aspects of today's story, while I'll cover the narrative. Glad to have you. Thanks, Vanessa. And hello, everyone. I'm thrilled to dive into the confession of the mad bomber, George Metesky. Now let's go back to Waterbury, Connecticut on January 22nd, 1957, just after midnight. The detectives stood in the tidy suburban living room, shifting uncomfortably. They weren't quite ready to believe their luck that this George Metesky was actually the man they'd been searching for for 16 long years. But the handwriting matched. His neat, square letters were just the same as the ones on the notes the Mad Bomber sent to the police and the notes he left with his homemade bombs. Then there was the psychological profile that the psychiatrist had written up, Dr. James A. Brussel. A new idea, using these medical types to find criminals, but maybe it was working. Metesky, after all, seemed to match every criteria Brussels had put forward for the bomber. He was of Eastern European descent, 53 years old, just a touch above Brussels' range of 40 to 50. He was a bachelor living with older female relatives, two unmarried sisters, he was clean-shaven and fastidious, with a medium build. He had a history of labor disputes, and according to several neighbors, he had a history of petty disputes, despite a generally normal, deferential demeanor. There was one last test, his choice of dress. The investigators had asked him to go upstairs and change out of his pajamas. And yes, there he was at the top of the stairs dressed in brown, rubber-soled shoes, a red-dotted necktie, a brown cardigan sweater, and, just as Brussels had predicted, a double-breasted blue suit. The detectives stood looking at him in silence for a few tense moments, stunned. Then one of them stepped forward. Very gently, he said, Tell me, George, what does FP stand for? Those were the initials that signed every note from the Mad Bomber. 
Metesky exhaled, then replied in a voice so soft it was little above a whisper. But the detectives heard his answer as clear as day. Fair play. It was him. They had their man. Metesky confessed to planting all the bombs, upwards of 30, the one on Con Ed's windowsills. They'd fired him unfairly after all. It was the toxic fumes from their furnace blast that left him with a 26-week case of tuberculosis. The ones in the movie theaters and train stations, in phone booths and libraries, well, Metesky was at war with the powers that be, with the whole world, which was, he was convinced, colluding against him. In his profile, Dr. Brussel explained the bomber's mental process. He twists it around so that wherever a wire runs, gas or steam flows from or to Con Edison Company is now a bomb target. In other words, Metesky perfectly fit the profile of what was then called a paranoiac. Brussel explained the diagnosis. The paranoiac is the world's champion grudge holder. We all get mad at other people and organizations sometimes, but with most of us, the anger evaporates eventually. A paranoiac's anger doesn't. Once he gets the idea that somebody has wronged him or is out to hurt him, the idea stays in his mind. This was obviously true of the Mad Bomber. The investigators arrested Metesky to the sorrowful cries of his sisters, who insisted George couldn't hurt anybody. In fact, his bombs had already injured 15 people, and it was only a matter of time before the consequences were even worse. Metesky's fastidious, respectable, sometimes petty facade concealed a deeply disturbed psychology and the capacity to kill. Coming up, we'll explore consequences of Metesky's crimes and of the investigation into his case. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. After 16 years of sporadic bombings in New York City, Dr. James A. Brussel drafted a psychological profile for the so-called Mad Bomber. It pointed investigators to the Waterbury, Connecticut home of George Metesky and his two sisters. And soon after midnight on January 22, 1957, his confession proved that Dr. Brussel's profile had been spot on. My guest host, Sam Dingman, is going to take over from here to discuss the aftermath of Metesky's arrest. Thanks, Vanessa. George Metesky's crimes did not, in the end, send him to trial or prison, though a grand jury did indict him on 47 charges. Four months after his arrest, a judge following Dr. Brussel's lead labeled him a paranoid schizophrenic 
and legally insane. He was committed to the Matawan Asylum for the Criminally Insane for 20 years. After his release in December 1973, he moved home to Connecticut. As far as we know, he didn't commit any more crimes before his death in 1994. His resentment against Con Edison and everything they touched was either resolved or his anger was tempered by fear. Fear of the law or perhaps of the asylum. Insane asylums in the 1950s, as they were then called, were far from gentle. And the Matawan Asylum, run by the superintendent of state prisons, was no exception. Prisoners were subjected to electroshock therapy. Several lobotomies were performed. Hypnosis was a common treatment. And by 1949, the facility was housing 1,750 people, despite the fact that it was built for 550. In the 1970s, the incarceration of mentally ill people became a more scrutinized topic. And in 1977, Matawan was closed. But the other link between the state and medicine that characterized George Metesky's case has been longer lasting. Dr. James A. Brussel, who wrote the eerily accurate psychological profile that led investigators to Metesky, went on to work on many cases for the police and the FBI. And while he wasn't always as dead on as in this first case, his work was remarkably consistent. As he himself put it, at times I was almost sorry I had been so successful in describing George Metesky for I had to live up to that success. It wasn't always easy, and sometimes it was impossible. There were times when I made mistakes. There were times when I simply lacked enough information to build an image of the criminal. Yes, there were cases on which I failed, but I continued to succeed often enough so that the police kept coming to me. The press was fascinated. They called Brussel everything from Sherlock Holmes of the couch to the psychiatric seer. Law enforcement was enthralled too, his success convinced them that psychiatrists might be an integral part of their investigative process. By the 1970s, he was widely recognized as the founding father of an entirely new discipline, criminal profiling. He kept working in the field until his death in 1982. Today, the field of psychology, just like the state's treatment of mental illness in criminal cases, has changed drastically. Criminal profiling has changed in kind, but Brussels' profound impact on the relationship between law enforcement and psychiatry lives on in FBI offices and police stations around America and around the world. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thanks again, Sam, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You can find my podcast, Family Ghosts, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. 
Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.